0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Maddie. I'm Amelia. And today we're talking about repetitive negative thinking.
1: Of the ruminative kind. Indeed. I found this episode really interesting and super refreshing, I think, because of the focus on rumination, maybe not so much as a thought and maybe not so much about what happens in the rumination. How do we challenge all of the unhelpful thoughts that happen when somebody is going, I don't know, over and over an event that happened? or asking really scary existential questions. Why me? Why is my life like this? I think any clinician who works with people, particularly depressed clients, but not at all limited to them, they'll find this a refreshing approach to addressing rumination and paying a little bit more attention to that as not necessarily an
0: avenue for thought challenging. Indeed. Today's guest is Professor Michelle Moulds from UNSW Sydney. Michelle is a clinical psychologist as well, and she has had a long history in practicing in terms of the role of repetitive negative thought, and particularly rumination, in not only predicting, but also maintaining a lot of uh, psychopathology. We had a really interesting discussion with
1: Michelle, and it was full of cool examples and ideas. It was about eight o'clock our time, Mm. and early in the morning for her while she was in lockdown. Now... It does mean, as a little heads up, the audio is a little bit patchy at times. I guess that's the time difference issue. The internet. Yeah, that's how it works, isn't it? So you do miss the odd word here and there. It's not a huge problem, but just a
0: heads up, bear with it. This episode is also quite practical, I think, Mm -hmm. compared to some of the other episodes. It's definitely getting into the nitty gritty of what rumination presents like in treatment and how we can measure it, assess it, and really target it as well. Exactly. I picked up a huge amount of ideas that I would carry into my practice straight away.
1: So lovely to have you on the podcast, Michelle.
2: Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: So, we're really interested in learning more about rumination today and the role it has in various therapies and various disorders. So, we may as well start with the one big question I bet a lot of people are asking right now, which is what actually is rumination? It's a very fancy word for what.
2: Right, good question, and a simple one to start with, but an important one too. So rumination really just refers to, I think, our tendency to get stuck. So when clients engage in rumination, we hear them in the room very much telling us over and over again about the same kinds of things, things I've done wrong, why I'm uh, the person that I am, why I can't cope with things, um, why I'm not a good person. So it's when our clients really get get stuck in that well-worn groove of going over and over again. Mm. And for the most part, rumination has been studied in the context of depression. So we think about our depressed clients as very much engaging or getting stuck in the past. Um, but we know that rumination is a tendency that cuts across clients with a range of disorders. So our socially anxious clients spend a lot of time going over what they said wrong and how badly they mm. came across. Also thinking ahead about how badly I'll do next time And similarly in PTSD, we hear a lot of dwelling on the accident and why I should have done done things differently or how I could have avoided that happening. Mm. So really I think of it most broadly as this tendency to get stuck and to engage over and over thinking about the same content.
0: It sounds like something that's not restricted to just one type of disorder. It's spread across the board, something that's quite arguably transdiagnostic. Definitely.
2: Um, and certainly more and more evidence, and, and this literature really did develop and blossom in the context of depression, but we have more and more evidence that this tendency to, to get stuck and to dwell is very much a characteristic of clients with a range of disorders. And that makes perfect sense too, if we think about the reality of our clients is that they really present to us with a neat disorder in one exactly. box. Exactly is far more the norm Um, and so we know that tendency to engage in the type of thinking can really catch on to different content and whatever it is that's client's main symptom, so very much transdiagnostic.
1: Mm. I, um, I personally think that the focus on mechanisms that are trans-diagnostic in nature that let you see one process in a person that might have two or, or more disorders is quite useful for clinicians who can then target processes rather than specific disorders. It's mm. so a kind of a nice move away from disorder-specific treatment into a bit more integrative treatment which is a great direction, I think, to go in. One thing I wondered, Michelle, around rumination, as someone who only have come across that really in the context of my clinical work, I've kind of thought about rumination and worry as perhaps two sides of the same coin, their similarities being kind of repetitive, negative thought. The way I've differentiated that is rumination dwells on the past and worry is future-focused, but I think I might be mistaken there. I think you mentioned unless I'm wrong, that rumination can be future-focused as
2: well? That's a really good question and and certainly one that's re- risen in the literature in the last couple of decades. And really, I guess, how does conceptualise or think about more broadly repetitive thinking? Mm. So this idea repetitive thinking just means, again, I get I get back in those grooves. And whether that's about something that could happen, the what mm. if that's much more big of anxiety, yep. and the what did I do or mm. you know, what did I do? As we see in the context of rumination. And for the most part, when we compare those types of thinking and studies, that really is the critical difference that emerges that you've just touched on there, that temporal difference, that it does tend to be more about what if in, in the context of worry, and that's how we think through mm. worry and how we assess who and more about the past in rumination. But this broader concept of repetitive thinking, I think, has encouraged us, again, driven very much by a transdiagnostic um, kind of idea to think about the commonalities in those types of thinking. So even if the content temporally is is distinct in the way that you just suggested, actually the processes, the mechanisms, the emotions involved, Mm. the way in which our clients try to manage or or cope with those types of thinking, the extent to which they're verbal and visual, we have a lot of evidence to suggest significant overlap. Mm. And that has led some to suggest actually focusing on this repetition might be more fruitful than looking at this a past and and future distinction. But that is definitely the key distinction in how we conceptualize these types of thinking and how we assess them. Mm. So this differentiation of
1: past-focused and future-focused is a distinction. However, there seem to be more valuable descriptors around these kinds of repetitive thinking processes like you mentioned, are they verbal, are they visual? And that's really interesting and new to me. I guess we picture our clients sitting at home thinking quietly but um, it sounds like that repetitive thought can take different forms in terms of either what's happening in their minds or even what they're doing if they're speaking out loud for example
2: definitely and and so again very much influenced by work in the worry literature by Tom Borkebeck and colleagues really emphasizing this very verbal nature of worry and we know for the most part when we've looked in similar ways at rumination there tends to be more of this verbal component as opposed to the visual so it's more heavily verbal mm. but certainly for some Hence, that visual component is a feature too so if we think for example in the context of PTSD mm. where our clients sometimes are triggered by those very visual intrusive memories that can then slide them into thinking about oh, what does this mean that I have this memory why didn't I do something differently so the verbal and visual can very much feature in the repetitive thinking predominantly verbal but yes there can be those visual kind of imagery I guess based components that can almost feed into mm. into that repetitive and that mm. rumination
0: and I guess, does that also tie into the clinicians would be thinking about repetitive thinking differently and maybe having a look at whether their clients are experiencing it in a verbal form or a visual form? And how might treatment be different depending on the type of rumination someone has?
2: Yeah, and for the most part, yeah, as I mentioned, it tends to be that verbal form. And I think in terms of the types of interventions that we would consider – Probably not so different. The way that I think is most helpful to approach rumination clinically is really to think in very behavioural terms. So to teach our clients firstly to spot their rumination because I think for many clients it's such an established pattern and such a habit that there may not even be an awareness that, that this is what I'm doing, I'm getting mm. on the train. Mm. <laughs> to teach our clients to spot that. What are the clues? When I start thinking about why, when I start thinking about why and getting very abstract and analytical, about things, then there's a clue that you're starting to ask those same kinds of why questions that are mm. down the road in And, again, spotting that, that type of thinking, being able to, to focus on what the cues are, learn about what the cues are, what it is it gets me started thinking that way, is it a context, is it an emotional state, is it a certain situation, spotting those clues there and teaching our clients alternative types of thinking. So instead to be much more specific and much more concrete and that comes back to your question, Maddie, again, no matter what it is, the form of that kind of rumination, teaching our clients to come down and think about the specific details and over time to learn to spot that behaviour, replace it with alternatives and teach clients to immerse much more in the here and now, so mm-hmm. be much more concrete. And so I think conceptualising rumination in that very behavioural way for me is, as a clinician feels really more straightforward. straightforward. But I think for our clients too it feels a bit more like I can do this. It's mm. a, a behavioural. And I can approach it in that way, and I think that's really useful perspective of what it is that is the content. Thinking in those very kind of clear cut, I guess, concrete behavioural terms yeah. is, is a approach, irrespective of what rumination.
1: Mm. Is. Yeah. So, so jumping on the rumination train to use your uh, metaphor is is more of a habit to break to learn what are the vulnerabilities for me to you know engage in this habit of mine, and how do I notice that I'm there and take myself out of it seems to me much more useful and even pragmatic than trying to challenge some of the content of the rumination which might mean you get stuck kind of co-ruminating with the client yeah. at the same time
2: <laughs> as well it's never ending i couldn't agree more and i think if i think back to you know many of the times when i've really struggled to do cognitive therapy with a very well practiced yeah but client yeah yes <laughs> And I think in hindsight, actually that approach is is what doesn't what doesn't help. And sometimes it can be some of the most beautiful cognitive therapy in unpacking that. But again, if that if that process and that very yeah but or why train is already underway, Mm. then thinking about that as a behavior can be a much more fruitful thing clinically and also a much more useful skill for our clients to learn. Sounds a bit easier too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like you're almost It may be intuitive or the first thing you'd think of when you have a client who's having difficulty with various thoughts and rumination is like, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to do thought challenging, we're going to target the thoughts, but just getting the client out of their head completely sounds Mm. like it can be a really helpful thing to do. And I imagine it also just, you can almost externalize the rumination or kind of just put it on the table and be like. Now we can deal with this rather than having it all up in your head, Mm.
2: unmanageable, like that big tangly cloud. Exactly. I think that's a nice way of thinking about it because it feels like that to us sometimes clinically as well. So you can imagine how that must feel when you have all of those thoughts. They've been there a long time in the client's mind. Mm. So again, and I think the key there is, teaching someone to spot their rumination, um, and also to come up with those alternative behaviours. So Mm. what do you notice when you're ruminating? And really getting a client very slowly to walk through that and to notice that, and I think this is really relevant in behavioural interventions. You know, We have our clients who do pleasant events and they'll often come back and say, but I look at my ratings, I don't feel any better. And when you really look closely and unpack what was going on, if the client's not there, if there's a lot of time, well, this used to make me feel good, but I'm not feeling good now, Mm. even though Engaging in the engaging in the behavioural task we set them, what's going on in terms of that, that rumination can really remove them from context. So coming up with an alternative of helping clients to immerse and to get involved in the detail, the sensory aspects, to be present mm-hmm. and really to kind of mindfulness type language, to be to foc- very much focused on the uh, the experience they're having, to and think about how they're feeling rather than going through the motions, but being busy up here, mm. distracted. Their
1: brain's on the train. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I, I actually would like to backtrack a little bit. I think we've jumped into some really helpful clinical so pieces questions. of wisdom. What I'm interested to know is is a bit more about if we go back to rumination and the problems it might be causing. What's your sense of the contribution of ruminative thinking two different disorders, you know, how important is it in presentations and what slice of the suffering pie does rumination occupy? Is that a tricky one? It is a
2: tricky yeah. one um, and I'm very biased so I would say <laughs> it's The whole critical, pie. <laughs> exactly, Maddie. But I think it's, it is a good question because I think it, there is the process of ruminating. There is how unpleasant that makes me feel. There's also what I'm missing out on and, and behavioural activation no is a treatment that I think really cuts to the heart of rumination. So the rumination component of um, Martel and colleagues' intervention is very much about teaching clients, what am I not doing in the world when I'm ruminating? So there's firstly how, how unpleasant it feels because going over and over and over things that have happened or possibilities doesn't make you feel good. But also then there's all of the opportunities that I'm missing out on In terms of doing my exposure, in terms of engaging in activities that will help me with my symptoms, but also in my life when I'm in my head, what? How am I not engaging with my family? How am I not enjoying my work in the way that I know uh, Mm -hmm. could lead it to make very fulfilled in the way it used to? And so I think it's it's almost a ripple. I I don't. I I think if you have that tendency, there's the short term doesn't feel great. But also if we think about the consequences and what that's stopping in terms of improvement and in terms of just engagement in the mm. world, broader effects too. We know there's a link between rumination and sleep. When I lie in bed and my head is very, very busy and I'm unlikely to to be able to sleep well, and that's going to have significant ripples across a whole range of other aspects of health and well-being. Mm. Um, so about ninety five percent,
1: ninety nine point nine, and it kind of aligns with this conceptualisation of rumination not as a thought process, but as a behaviour. And when you think about it that way, not only do you access the fact it's distressing when it happens. But it gets in the way of things as well, like any unhelpful behavior would. What's it stopping you from doing? What's it taking you away from? Things that both give you a sense of, you know, satisfaction and things that give you joy and, and, and enjoyment, like socializing. And Maddie did touch me on the shoulder when you said sleep because I'm, I'm very interested sleep. in sleep. <laughs> so
2: that's- and sleep is just one example. So, again, we know when sleep is disrupted, there's a whole cascade of that cascade that really cuts across our mental and physical health that we know almost snowballs into a range of difficulties. Mm. difficulties
0: yeah so I find rumination really interesting in that we've been talking about how we can externalize it as a process rather than content does that mean that for instance when we give our clients monitoring forms and we're getting them to log their thoughts they would almost be logging the process of rumination rather than the
2: content of rumination per se yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think often what we find when we give our clients our very standard cognitive therapy sheets, we can see the rumination in there. And When we've asked them to generate an alternative, might just be a ruminative thought. I think it is a really good question because that line is, is not clear. And for many clients, mm-hmm. once I'm on the room, it can look different. And it pulls in that. There's not content process distinction. It pulls in all of the, the catastrophizing and all of the generalizing and all of those kinds of habits that we know are characteristic of our clients. And I think for me, when I have clients monitor their rumination, a really useful way to do that is to think about the language and why. Mm. And I've had clients go away and every time you have a why thought, write it down for me. And sometimes those thoughts are really helpful. Um, You know, oh, why didn't I do that? And so that can prompt you to engage in action. But what we know with rumination is it becomes this repetitive Mm. stream of why that usually don't have an answer and the answer is another why question. Mm. What we really want is a nice tag for our clients to be able to spot, oh, that's it can think of one in particular pages and pages of why posing impossible kinds of questions that's what we're looking for in our clients because why do we even have the monitor so that they can learn to monitor in their heads away Mm. from their sheets going forward logging those kinds of questions can be a really useful way of them getting having an awareness of wow how much i'm doing this Mm. and also then to unpack when am i doing that when is it more distressing when do I start thinking like that and and move on? Let it go. So when is the clue exactly?
0: I find it really interesting that rumination is such a big part of depression and depression is a very, I guess, some might argue a behavioral, the behavioral treatment of it. Um, but then earlier we were talking about how mindfulness can also be really helpful for rumination because it is such a good way to get out of your head. Does that mean that... You, I guess when a clinician is faced with whether they should go down the mindfulness path or the behavioural activation path, what what kind of decisions or questions should they be asking in determining which one they should go down?
2: Good question as well. And I think it, when it comes to rumination, to be I don't see them as so different mm. because I my erring is always on the side of the behavioural. I think the best evidence based treatments that we it's have behavioral. for this kind of thing, rumination focused cognitive therapy, um, and also Martell and colleagues' behavioural activation. That rumination component I think is a wonderful way of really capturing and simplifying rumination. And I think the key is what we should do for any other behaviour. We need to teach our clients to spot it. We need to get them to better understand the cues and the contexts in which it's it's made worse and, and in which it's better. And then critically, we need to teach an alternative. And once clients can see that the the rumination, the the real clue for rumination is being abstract, moving away from the moment, then we can teach alternatives. And that's where I think there's a whole gamut of strategies that we have Mm. is engaging in the present. So, you know, for clients that might spend a lot of time doing their walk home from work and they're still up here, they're still in the office. Okay, what could I do on that walk home to really engage me? Mm. How do I or on the sensory aspects of what's happening around me. So I think there are tools that we have that can help our clients to look in and to engage in in the moment. But I think most broadly in terms of the framework and the the best evidence that we have is really to take that very behavioural stance and to use those kinds of approaches when we're coming up with much more adaptive, helpful behaviours when we start engaging. in.
0: And it sounds like something that can be applied regardless of the uh, presenting problem as well. It's a strategy that can be applied across the board in terms of getting people to re-engage and to be mindful of what their thoughts are and trying to to disengage from them. It's not restricted to anxiety. It's not restricted to depression or PTSD. This is something that really cuts across the board. In terms of um, when we think about the experimental lens of rumination, which is something that I love so much, (laughs) how do you actually test whether rumination is a causal mechanism in these kind of presenting problems, or are we just beating around the bush and saying that something that's correlated is causing it when really it's not?
1: Never.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good question. I mean I think our our typical approach in the lab, and certainly in this early in the early rumination literature, Susan Nolan, Herxima and colleagues, is very much to have our clients come into the lab, manipulate rumination, so have one group of participants uh, read through a series of prompts that instruct them to focus their attention on their problems, their feelings, and to think about the causes and meanings and consequences. This is the way I feel right now. What does that mean? What are the consequences? So to really to um, encourage that kind of very abstract analytical approach and compare that with a condition in which participants read through a series of statements that were very externally oriented. Think about the layout of your local shopping Mm centre. Think about clouds forming in the sky. So the very early literature compared the consequences, the relative consequences of those two manipulations: one engaging in me and my problems and thinking about why, and one more externally. And then over the years, I, that really prompted people to ask the question: Well, is it? Does that really t- get to the heart of of what's so problematic about rumination? Because we have two conditions that are quite different: one's externally one focused, one's internally focused. One has this very abstract flavor. And one is, again, just focusing attention away. Mm. So in a series of experiments um, that I was involved in with Ed Watkins and others, we instead said, actually, let's look at the same content of thinking. So let's have participants think about our problems and difficulties in a very abstract way, so have them in that ruminative mode, why, causes, meanings, consequences, and let's just compare that to to another group of participants who have the same content, but we just tell them to focus on the detail. Focus on the detail of how you feel versus think about why you feel the way you feel. Interesting. To be honest, that seems like a distinction that wouldn't, to me, when I first looked at it, result in (laughs) different consequences. But there are a lot of experimental studies now showing that is the case. If you have depressed or dysphoric participants and you get them to focus in and be abstract, we have uh, demonstrated a lot of um, adverse outcomes in the lab. So impaired problem-solving, a tendency to get stuck on negative memories, a tendency to feel worse. Um, more recently, we've done work on decision-making, Shanta Day at UNSW, showing that that very abstract thinking you know, prevents people from making decisions in the context of depression as opposed to same content and just focusing on the detail. And I think that really gives us a nice basis for saying it really is getting stuck in that abstract why, abstract why, why, mode. Exactly. Why. That we can see leads to these deficits. Um, even if you give people a negative experience in the lab and you know, give them some negative feedback, again, we see significantly poorer adjustment to that or feeling worse after that relative to this concrete rumination. So that gives us a good sense that we're talking about something that's a driver and clinically mm. it makes sense to target in our interventions.
1: So the the real distinguishing feature between those two Similar kind of rumination conditions is the why in the in the true abstract rumination sense, and it's why do I feel the way I feel? Yeah. What and,
2: What are the causes? What are the meanings? What are the consequences? Okay. What caused this? Why? And what What does this mean going forward?
1: Okay. About About me and and my mood and okay. In the condition where it's focusing on on the problem itself, so still internally focused and and focused on un, unhelpful things or negative things. But it's more just what are the particulars of how I'm feeling. So just is that right?
2: On the details. And okay. I think, and we've taken a step forward in subsequent studies. Um, so I mentioned Shanta's work where instead of having someone think about a decision, what it means, and what might I do, focus on the specific details and the steps. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really the clinical, the critical clinical thing for me. One is just getting me stuck into this spiral of why, and another shifting into a more focus on the detail and thinking more proactively. And I think there the language again is so critical. If I think about why do I have a problem or I think about what is my problem and how can I move forward, subtle difference in language but a very different frame from our clients' movement rather than that spinning of wheels. And Mm. I think that's the distinction that's emerged from that experimental work into the clinic is if we can stop our clients in the tracks, you're noticing why, how do I shift my why into a what and how? And with that view to moving forward and starting to solve problems, because our clients do have problems. How do mm. I feel? I feel awful. What's going on in my life? I've had a very difficult circumstance. Then following that with, okay, how can I? How can I do this? What mm. might be the step right now is very different to the spinning wheels of, of constant why
1: mm. Mm. or trying to challenge. Oh, it can't be that bad. You know, you, you have had a difficult time at work. How likely is it that you, your colleagues maybe think that you're not pulling your weight when maybe they are quite, you know, low functioning? And I understand the importance exactly. of moving out of the head and into the problem solving.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Bringing it back to, I remember one of the first questions we asked was, how is rumination and worry different? And I think that discussion really brings to mind the fact that there's not a huge. There's not like a clinically meaningful difference between rumination and worry that you would kind of get hung up about as a clinician. It's kind of, you're right in that they have the same flavor as repetitive negative thinking rather than getting a rumination specific treatment manual or a worry specific treatment manual or trying to even bother to tell the difference. It's all about if you see your clients with repetitive negative thinking, we've got to go in and kind of treat it as a behavior rather than getting hung up in maybe labelling it or something like that.
2: I, I totally agree. And I think, again, that's, that's something that's really emerged from the literature in over the last couple of decades. And many of the ideas and many of these, these uh, suggestions around abstractness, again, ideas that came from the worry literature mm-hmm. and we can see play out in the context mm-hmm. of rumination. And I think a really critical point and something that I get slightly hung up on here is around the issue of assessment. And I think one of the ways in which it's really kept us thinking about worry and rumination in separate boxes, I mm-hmm. guess, with setting clients is the way in which we assess um, these types of thinking. Now, the, the gold standard measure of rumination, Nolan Hoeksema's measure, measures res, um, response to depressed mood. So that's a great instrument in the context of depression, but that is so commonly used across clients with a range of uh-huh. uh, disorders. An extent to which that's a meaningful way of capturing repetitive thinking, I think is, is questionable. And similarly, if we give our client, we give our clients the Penn State with, with anxiety because that's what anxious people do. I, I think sometimes that, that compartmentalizing into rumination versus worry is very much driven by the instruments we have and, and more recently, more, um, in the literature. So Pete McAvoy,
1: mm-hmm. Alison
2: Money and I, a measure of repetitive thinking that we can use with any of our clients, Transdiagnostic and similarly um, thomas Ehring and colleagues uh, here in europe develops the severative thinking questionnaire again an instrument that's not tied to disorder content it's not tied to whether you're in the worry box or the rumination box just trying to tap into irrespective of what the concern is or your symptoms are this tendency to get stuck in your thinking and Mm -hmm. i think we take this conceptualization and move that into our assessment i think that will really importantly inform our intervention
1: it's interesting what you've kind of been describing there as potentially, you know, the value of instruments like the Penn State worry questionnaire and the original rumination questionnaires that are kind of created for these single disorders are helpful, but then they do encourage this process of kind of putting things in boxes. And I think this is perhaps a little less interesting for, for clinicians, but what we tend to observe, I think, in the research world. Is, is two opposing movements in a way, or maybe maybe there is kind of broad change. I think there's so many bright minds interested in discovering and measuring different phenomena and deciding or putting together treatments for different disorders. Like, oh, I found a particular presentation of anxiety in this population, so I should create a measure that assesses that particular kind of anxiety and then a treatment that does that. And that's really valuable, but I think we end up with this, you know, commonly known too many, um, too many empirically validated treatments problem. And contrary to that, there are people saying, well, let's just take a step back and instead of splitting, let's start lumping and look at what are the processes that generally pervade most people with who are anxious, full stop, or who are low, full stop, and that just seems so much more valuable. To clinicians and even researchers as well looking to to help the most people they can without having to do CPD
2: every day completely agree and I think the the value of that I think we've embraced the value of that clinically in the literature um, and I but I think an important piece of that is assessment mm-hmm. and so I agree it's it's much less burdensome for our client to fill in one instrument that taps a process mm-hmm. than it is to have these comorbidities. So this measures here, it just, it doesn't help us to simplify our thinking and look at change and certainly sure. then not help clients. Um, but I, I definitely agree. I think there's in terms of simplicity, in terms of reaching the reality of the burden of mental health, having these broader approaches that, that can be tailored or that can really fit for a range of clients without being for very precise clients with this comorbidity or the absence of yeah. this kind of fit is much more fruitful when we're ultimately designing interventions to help the most people, the most people. yeah
0: yeah and we also we want we want the best outcomes for our clients but we also want to give ourselves the best chance of delivering treatment to the best of our ability and if we have less or sorry fewer treatments to try to master then chances are us as clinicians will also be kind of more confident and deliver them in a way that's likely to get better outcomes as well because we're not trying to specialize in every single thing for instance if you're in private practice you see such a wide variety of clients you're already busy adding to your cognitive load, learning all these different things. I guess it's more efficient mm. to learn less. You can tell that Amelia and I are clumpers rather than splitters. Than splitters, <laughs> yeah, <It's> very obvious.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Clumping makes a lot of sense. I'm a clumper too, yeah. and I think it's more, it's it, it's definitely more. And then the question is about what's the best way to teach to treat this process rather than what's the way that I treat this client and then Mm. it's very much more driven by a formulation approach this person is heavily you know ruminative; they get stuck in their thoughts okay what's the best way that I can approach that process Mm -hmm. that we know from the evidence and so Mm. yeah that makes it's more
0: experimental as well you're kind of going in for the heart of the the mechanism that you assume is driving it and that is arguably perhaps more effective and efficient
2: and it will take less time I guess Mm. Exactly, and it's tailoring our treatments for our formulation. Mm, Exactly,
1: we uh, like to wrap up our interesting, insightful interviews with the same collection of brief questions. So, Michelle, one of the first things we like to know is what is one of the biggest misconceptions you think in your field? What's a misunderstanding that you do frequently come across? Um,
2: hmm. I think, I think coming back to what we've covered earlier, this idea that it's really hard to treat rumination and I think it can be challenging for sure but I think again that taking that that approach that we've talked about and seeing that through the lens that we through which we approach most problems in the clinic and thinking about this is a behavior and looking at those kinds of cues and replacing that with an alternative behavior again I think is a really nice way of simplifying what feels like someone might come to therapy with 30 years of of going over yeah and I think for me that um That idea that that's too hard, I don't know what to do with that. Mm. Actually, if we think about, say, a phobia, then for me it simplifies some of that thinking. So I think it would be that. Sense of it's just too hard. Too
1: hard. Can I follow that up with another mm. question? Good. Um, it also strikes me if we're talking about this as a behavior and we're talking about someone, say, we have a middle aged client who has a lifelong history maybe of recurrent depressive episodes and an even kind of even between episode tendency to ruminate. And then we expect to give them some psychoeducation and some sort of form and they break the habit between two sessions. And then we go, gosh, that is hard. Um, I think it would be hard if we were expecting ourselves to fix it that quickly. So I, I wonder if it does, you know, I think challenging, but not impossible by, in terms of using the language that you said, it's, it, it shouldn't be a deterrent to address because it is difficult to change, but maybe we should give ourselves a little bit more time and, um, and a bit more faith in the, in the fact that habits can change, albeit a little bit slowly and with some
2: persistence. So definitely. And I think another, that points to another complication here that for many clients, it's, this is just what I do. And I start thinking it's this who way. I and am. But also sometimes that sits alongside, but I do this because it helps me. Mm. And I think that if beliefs we know uh, are common in GAD, we see very much here. And so there can be this mismatch between I can't, it's just, it's my default i do it without realizing but also these this inherent belief that this is how i understand things and so i think unpacking and again that almost comes in with our challenging unpacking the, the, the evidence for that belief that this has actually helped you to solve your problems alongside getting people to, to spot and to to look for the clues they're going on this path so i think you're right it's i think that approach can help to simplify things but it certainly doesn't change something to something that we could you know fix overnight mm. um I, a lot to unpack for our clients, but it's more doable I think in that framework
0: yeah mm. yeah that's a really nice way of describing it as well that rumination is a habit and it's going to take time to change um and that's okay on the behalf of both the clinician and the client mm. the fact that it might take a few months or a few sessions it doesn't mean that it's not working
2: yeah and also to be we know for habits that are entrenched to even be mm. in the position where I, that I'm doing it is is sure. very very challenging so much part of how you approach life and how you inherited a habit or however that habit came mm-hmm. to emerge so even just be, being able to be better at noticing i'm starting to do that we know for clients with a long-standing habit of any kind that's a significant um you know step so certainly we, we need time
1: and also not only noticing it as a habit but getting to that next level of being willing to let go of it, considering, as you just mentioned, there are these potential draw cards or perhaps erroneously formed Mm. beliefs that it helps me to solve problems or it helps me prevent failure, um, which is certainly going to be some obstacles that commonly come up, I would guess, in addressing long-term rumination.
2: Absolutely. And what do I do if I don't do this? Mm. And again that's where our cognitive kind of challenging and our behavioral experiments come okay. in so i think the of of taking those strategies we know are helpful for other long standing beliefs that encourage the maintenance of unhelpful behaviors taking those same approaches and taking it to to this habit of thinking so mm. definitely helps to frame it but certainly there's a there's a process there when we're trying to shift something that's so ingrained mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It's always, I find it really helpful to remember that there's a reason that someone's behaviors have stuck around. Exactly. There's always a reason why rumination has been helpful for them.
1: Yeah. At some point. Mm.
0: So one question that I've been quite excited to ask you is we like to ask researchers one question that they really want to answer in their career or they would like to see answered. What is your research question that you just can't wait to get
2: I don't think I can answer it, but a question I think some very <laughs> developmental researcher can answer for me is how how does this emerge? So for, for and there are, there are some suggestions, you know, perhaps when, when children are, are raised in context in which there's uncertainty or they have to, spend a lot of time analysing other people's behaviour to understand or if there's inconsistency in perhaps their parenting or their significant relationships where they learn to ask why and to spend a lot of time analysing, perhaps that puts someone on a path where that's their emotional default when is to overthink things. But what we don't really understand is how does that emerge? I mean, is that, there's probably a combination of factors. If I have parents who respond to their problems that way, I probably learn that too. Or maybe I've had an environment in which there's, there's there is a lot of uncertainty or a lot of... um Circumstances that lead me to to think in too mind. hard, mm. exactly, um, and maybe there are broader social factors too. And I think you know, gender is a very significant kind of variable, and really prompted Susan Nolan Herxima's work in this area at the outset. This idea that we know in children the the rates of depression are comparable until you hit around the early adolescence and teens when we see that rate soar for for females. And her suggestion was it was this tendency to respond in very different ways to emotions and problems. That was responsible for driving that difference. So I'm, I'm interested in, in why. Mm. why. Why does it come to be? And I'm not the person to answer that. <laughs> um, there's probably a, a bunch of factors, and we probably all know a bunch of people who could answer that question, but understanding better the trajectory. How does this come to emerge? Because the, the better we understand that, the better we can be armed in terms of prevention, which, of course, is always preferable to seeing our clients many mm-hmm. years down the track entrenched habits.
0: And I think there is a beautiful irony that I just realized in which a leading rumination researcher's one big question is why? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love it. I love it.
2: <laughs> I shift that into a how.
1: <laughs> how do we answer this question? Come on, let's problem solve. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, that's not a great note to end on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good because we have one final question for you. What would be the one thing you'd like to see clinicians integrate into their practice based on your expertise in rumination and its treatment?
2: Oh, wow. I, I guess it really does echo, um, what we've, we've covered earlier that around this idea of more broadly thinking about repetitive thinking and listening out to our clients, irrespective of what symptoms they've brought to us or what their experiences have been. And if we hear that tendency to get stuck, then to, to focus on that, um, in that, in that very kind of behavioral way. Yeah. I think and not to be constrained by the boxes of you do this because you engage mm-hmm. in this because you and the other, but rather thinking more broadly, listening out for that clue and then approaching that regardless of what it is that's the content of that repetitive. All about the behaviour. Thinking is
1: a behaviour. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Great. And you get
0: three behaviourists in a room and Mm -hmm. what a surprise that the take-home message is that thinking is (laughs) a (laughs) behaviour.
2: Exactly. It is what it is. Exactly. I think there's a lot to be said for simplicity, so something about that really... I think as a clinician, um, and probably for a client who's feeling very overwhelmed, I think if we can give a message of simplicity for someone to take out of the room, that has to be a great starting point. Exactly. For no one will understand or can fix. And I think if we can instill some kind of hope around trying to keep things in, in, in a way that we can approach that feels that will be beneficial for our clients.
1: A very wise supervisor once told me the more complex the problem, the more simple the solution that you offer.
2: I couldn't agree more, and I always think in terms of rumination, I think if we can teach our clients to solve their problems with their feet and not their head, mm-hmm. I think is a fun way to think about it. Think about what can I do as another behavior, what could I do instead mm-hmm. rather than trying to to fix it up here because that hasn't hasn't worked. Right worked. I think that's couldn't agree with that more. There's uh, the more the more we can present simplicity, I think that's that's useful for clients and practice it has been an absolute pleasure
1: ironically quite thought-provoking <laughs> just to, to to jump on maddie's uh, excellent joke
0: <laughs> thank you I, I was bursting out of my skin very once I thought of it. <laughs> so excited um yes but it's been such a lovely lovely opportunity to talk to you about what you it are has.
2: so wise in
0: thank you so much for coming on thank you
2: to you both for having me it's lovely really lovely and, and a nice discussion and um yeah, a lovely opportunity to think about not just the evidence but how we make sure we really lay that out in clinical practice. so, thank mm, you so much. Great. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We both
1: had a joke about ruminating over the content yeah. of the episode and I think they're both equally lame and we Do came have up a with go? them at the same time. I think neither of us deserve. <laughs> I think
2: so we just good move...
0: I think we just move on. If you did enjoy the podcast, please like it, subscribe it, And check out our website for additional content and links to Michelle's work. Scienceoftherapy.com. You can also claim CPD there if you want to. Catch you next time.